Hello everyone and welcome to episode 590 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses, and I'm your host. What have you been up to this week? I have been... Well, making cake and eating cake. I don't know why, but there are an inordinate number of birthdays in my family and people I know this month. And some of them are significant birthdays. So my month has been full of events, get-togethers, celebrations with people flying in from overseas and lots of cake. It's not my birthday, but it seems like everyone else I know is having one. Now, apart from cake, though, uh, I'm very excited to announce that the Australian Writers' Centre is one of the sponsors of this year's Northern Beaches Readers Festival. We were a sponsor last year as well. Now, this is one of my favourite festivals. It is the brainchild of author Sandy Docker and her team of organisers and you know programmers is also incredible. It's still a long way off, but if you want to mark it in your diaries, and because it's, I just love it. It's um, September 27th to 29th, 2024. And now let's welcome Nat Newman, creative writing tutor at the Australian Writers' Centre, uh, author, actor, movie maker, <laughs> many things. How are you, Nat? I'm great, Valerie. How are you? I'm good. What have you been up to this week? Uh, you know, keeping busy. Uh, we had a new novel writing essentials. Um, class start this week so just yes. getting to know my new students which is always fun um, and yeah just you know me rehearsals class all the rest <laughs> has it been a highlight uh, no you know it's kind of the beginning of the term so we're oh. kind of just sort of still settling into all the all the different classes um, you know meeting all the new people and all that sort of thing so yeah I'm and I'm, it's always a bit tiring um, you know when you sort of got to <laughs> throw yourself back into all, all the studies after you know so many weeks so off. True, so yeah. true. Let's move on to our writing tip this week. What have you got for us? Right. So this one actually comes from um, a question that came up in the Right Direction um, uh, Q&A that we had last month. Um, and, and of so course, the, the Right Direction is the um, Zoom session that we have for creative writing students who can all come together and ask a bunch of questions. Yeah, it's really fantastic. Like um, if you're one of our graduates or one of our students, uh, you can just ask any burning writing question that you've got and, it, you know, you've got uh, the fabulous uh, Pamela Freeman there to answer any of your questions. It's fantastic. Um, so one question we had last month was how do you know when you have a first draft? Um, oh. Yeah. Which I Meaning thought... a first draft that's worthy as opposed to a first draft? Like surely you know when you get to the end of your story. Well, I don't know. I, and the way the question was asked is was literally, how do you know when you have a first draft? Um, and it's interesting you say, how do you know if it's worthy? Because I guess you don't and you never do. And a first draft never is. <laughs> so I yes. really think all you need for a first draft, honestly, is a beginning, a middle and an end. Um, and, you know, your beginning might be weak and your middle might be sketchy and your ending might be shaky, but it doesn't matter. You've got roughly got a beginning, a middle and an end. Uh, and you know, roughly the shape of your story. That's it. That's all you need for a first draft. Because the key uh, word is first. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Mm. And that's why we always push at the writer center for people to just get that first draft down because, um, you know, if you don't, if you don't get to the end, you'll never be able to 
actually look at the whole thing and then start editing and revising. Mm. Yes, there's no point. Often people start editing when they're kind of halfway through, but that's or structurally editing it, which kind of doesn't make sense at all because you do need to know what happens at the end to ensure that the rest of it leads up to what's at the end. Yeah, 100%. And I think that happens. In fact, I know why that happens. It's because when you get to about a third of the way into into a story, and this happens to almost every writer, you get about a third of the way in and you just lose hope. <laughs> oh, and yeah, I know. Yeah. And you just go, oh my God, you know, you can't see the ending. And, and, and so you do, you just go back and think, well, if I just keep fixing the beginning and the beginning, somehow the ending will reveal itself to me, but that's not how it works. You have to keep moving forward. Uh, otherwise, you know, you'll never actually reach the end. And no matter how hard it is, and no matter how many difficult marshes you have to wade through, uh, you do just have to keep pushing through to the end. And then once you've got that first draft, you open up a bottle of wine and congratulate yourself and go, I'm amazing. I wrote a first draft. <laughs> and it's also, I think that's interesting what you're saying about, about two thirds or three quarters or whatever, um, or, or, you know, through, through the project. I think that happens with any creative project mm -hmm. or with many creative projects. And part of it is losing hope. And part of it is actually um, while there's still a bit to go, I I can I can get there. I can make something good as opposed to when it's finished, you go, oh, is it good? Is it not? Then you actually have to make a decision as to whether or or or, or give that power to somebody else. Some people do um, as to whether that is good or not or possible to be published or put in a gallery or whatever it is, right? So it's almost like putting off this fi final um, decision or final judgment as to whether what you've produced is is quality or not. And yeah. because if you don't get there, you don't have that judgment. <laughs> That's really interesting. Yeah. So it's almost like um, uh, like a fear of fear of finishing because yeah. once you finish, then possibly, you know, you have to actually look at it and go, oh no, is it good enough? Is it, is it terrible? Yeah, true. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. A lot of things I think that stop people in the, at the end of the day, really does come down to a very elaborate form of procrastination. Oh, like, yes. Yeah, like doing lots and lots of research, writing lots and lots of character studies, um, you know, drawing maps, uh, you know, all, all that sort of world building. And all that stuff's great, 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 great. But Renovating I, your writer's studio. <laughs> <laughs> yes, countless trips to office works. Yes, all of those things, they're, they're very important, but they are don't lie to yourself. It's procrastination. <laughs> yes. I can't, I'm not going to start till I have the perfect mechanical keyboard. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Who would think that Valerie? <laughs> All right. I love that tip. Thank you. Um, yeah. So if you're wondering whether you have a first draft, remember the keyword is first. You probably do if you've got a beginning, middle and end. Thanks so much, Nat. And we'll talk to you next week. All right. Thanks, Valerie. Now let's move on to our competition this week. This week, we're giving away three copies of The Tipping Point by Danuka McKenzie, award-winning author of The Torrent and Taken, both fantastic novels. You can also meet her on episodes 526 and 427 of our podcast. Here's the blurb. Weeks from Christmas in the sweltering heat of summer, Detective Kate Miles' estranged brother, Luke Grayling, returns home to Esserton to farewell a childhood friend, Aunt Reed, dead by suicide. Within days of the funeral, another young man, Marcus Rountree, is found shot dead in the back paddock of his property. 
Almost 20 years ago, Luke, Ant and Marcus were best mates in high school and now two of the three friends are dead. A tragic coincidence or is there something more sinister connecting the three men? When Luke is identified as a person of interest in Marcus's death, Kate once again finds herself in the middle of a media storm, sidelined from the case and battling accusations of conflict of interest. As press attention deepens and uncomfortable truths about Luke's personal life and past events come to light, Kate is forced to contend between loyalty to the police force and the bonds of friendship and blood. Okay, so I have three copies to give away. Just go to writercentre.com.au slash win and entries close on the 26th of February. So that's writercentre.com.au slash win. And I've made it super easy for you to enter. And don't worry if you're at that URL in the future, that'll be okay because there'll be some other fantastic competition there for you to enter. And now... Are you ready for the word of the week? All right, the word of the week this week is Inglenook. Isn't that a cute word? Inglenook, I-N-G-L-E-N-O-O-K, Inglenook. It is an angled section by a large fireplace where people can sit. (laughs) And you absolutely must do an image search of Inglenooks. They look like perfect spots to sit, you know, like with a cup of hot chocolate and read a book. I'm thinking I need to put a fireplace in my house maybe just so I can have an Inglenook. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our course, Creative Nonfiction, is your essential guide to crafting a true story into a compelling, page-turning book. Creative nonfiction is one of the most popular genres in publishing right now, and it's clear to see why people love a good story. And if it's based on true events, they're even more invested in it. Perhaps you want to explore true crime, history or literary journalism. Maybe you have a great idea for a memoir or armchair travel book. It doesn't matter what subject you're passionate about, this course provides you with a blueprint on everything you need to know, from how to structure your story and bring its real characters to life, to the kind of research you need to do and the techniques that will drive your narrative to a powerful climax. With over 10 hours of lessons and plenty of practical exercises to complete, you'll discover how to weave your true story into a truly great read. This powerful course removes the guesswork and breaks down the process step-by-step so you can approach your writing project with confidence. And because it's one of our online self-paced courses, you can learn in your own time with 12 months access to all course materials. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash creative nonfiction. That's writerscentre.com.au slash creative nonfiction. Let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Jamel Wells is an ABC television and radio newsreader and the senior court reporter for New South Wales. Over almost two decades, she has covered some of Australia's highest profile cases, including the criminal trials of school teacher Chris Dawson, the inquiries into the convictions of Kathleen Folbig for killing her four children, 
the criminal trials of former Labor ministers Eddie Obeid and Ian MacDonald, the Sydney siege inquest and inquest into the disappearance of William Tyrrell. Jamel is a television and radio commentator on courts and legal affairs for programs including Australian Story for ABC Television. Her first book covering city courts was The Court Reporter in 2018 and was longlisted for several awards. Her latest book is a great read and it is The Outback Court Reporter. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jamel. Thank you for asking me, Valerie. The Outback Court Reporter. I mean, so you have been a court reporter for a long time. You've already written a, a book, The Court Reporter, and now The Outback Court Reporter. Before getting into this book, which is just so fascinating and such a great read, tell us, why did you want to become a court reporter in the first place? Um, well, there's there's a story to this in that I never studied law um, and I was working as a journalist and a newsreader in the ABC newsroom and one of the court reporters uh, at the time transferred into state and a news director said to me, look, do you want to uh, take on the round for a while and, and try it out? And I thought, oh, this is so hard, I, I can't possibly do it. Uh, but I did for a few months and I absolutely loved it. And then I uh, applied for the job and was given the job. Uh, so I've been doing it now for almost 20 years, would you believe? And I think part of the reason I love courts so much is the drama and the theatre of them. And I actually studied drama and, and theatre as part of my media degree. So there was an instant um, sort of hook for me, if you like. And every day I learn something new in a courtroom, even though I've been doing it for a long, long time, there's always something new to learn about the law. It would be absolutely fascinating because there is inherent conflict. There is inherent drama. Are there particular kinds of cases that you are more interested in or, or find more entertaining? Not that they should be entertaining, but you know what I'm saying, more intriguing than others? Well, some of them are very entertaining. I mean, I've covered uh, the gamut of, of cases from very serious, high-profile murder trials to uh, trials for terrorists and, and child sex offenders, all, all sorts of, uh, of cases and cases involving people of all ages and, and from everywhere. But with my latest book, uh, The Outback Court Reporter, uh, I mostly work in city courts. I grew up in a, a country town and so I know how country towns work and, and what they're like to live in. And I've been working in the city for most of my professional life, but on occasion I've been sent out to cover cases in country courtrooms and it's a completely different atmosphere in the bush uh, to a city court. And the more I started reporting on country courts, the more I started enjoying doing that because it's a very uh, small environment. And like in a country town, in a country courtroom, chances are you know everybody in the courtroom. So uh, the prosecutor may know uh, the accused or, or some of the witnesses may be someone's neighbour or, or, or something like that. So there's a very... Um, intimate sort of close atmosphere in country courtrooms. Also cases make it into country courtrooms that would not make it into a city court. And in the country, um, there aren't really many 
high profile murder trials or trials involving juries, Valerie, they're more local court or magistrate courts things. And local courts and magistrates courts are where most criminal matters start. So if you're charged with murder, for example, chances are you'll first appear in a local court, then your case will progress up to uh, higher courts. And so local and magistrates courts are, are what are mostly in country towns around Australia. And there are the very serious domestic violence matters, uh, alcohol-related crime, drug-related crime, a lot of traffic offences, but there are also all sorts of neighbourhood disputes that would never make it into a city court. And some of them are I found them hilarious and very entertaining to watch. And, and the great joy for me has been I've sat in on these courts all around Australia and I've ended up talking to a lot of the people involved in the cases, the magistrates, the lawyers, the accused, uh, the witnesses, families in the public gallery. Um, it's a very, very intimate environment and um, there's always someone to talk to if you walk into a country courtroom. And I think that as you as you say, sometimes they're very serious. Some of the uh, some of the cases that you have detailed in the book are utterly hilarious. And when you're sitting there in court, does it? Uh, do you just let yourself guffaw? You know, do you, do you, does a snort come out because it's so ridiculous, or are you you trying to keep it professional? Because I, I wouldn't be able to help myself. No, I, I don't, because it's not really part of court etiquette to be laughing out loud. So uh, I usually uh, sit on my hands or, or or hold my hands very tightly, clench them like this to try and, and not laugh. Um, it would be disrespectful to the magistrate, to, to the court process itself. And one of the things I, I've learned over the years as a court reporter in the city and the country is to be polite and respectful in a courtroom. But not everyone is, and um, quite often people are yelling out at the magistrate or yelling out at each other or, or getting removed from the courtroom because they're too rowdy and, and too disruptive. And um, it's at a magistrate's discretion whether or not you can actually stay in a courtroom. Sometimes the magistrate can close the court or say, your behaviour is is so unruly or out of line, get outside, you, you can't stay in here. Um, I did speak to one magistrate who had a very uh, funny case once and he himself had to try not to laugh. It was a woman who was suing for compensation because her neighbour's dog had jumped the fence and impregnated her prized poodles. And she was wanting compensation for that because she said the dog had trashed her pantry, had raided her pantry, clawed her couch and destroyed her couch, and that these poodles had these mongrel illegitimate puppies. And the magistrate told me that he was dropping pens and things on the floor because it was so funny he was trying not to laugh so he's bending down on the floor and pretending to pick things up but he said he soon realized that the woman was very very serious and and she took this to heart so he ended up awarding her some financial compensation for her sad loss and um the the puppies that she didn't want um but he, he found it very hard with all the serious cases that he'd heard that day not to laugh at this particular one Absolutely. And sometimes it's incredulous, as you say, what makes it to court? I mean, you open with a seat, you open with a, a case of some stolen chopper chops. 
<laughs> which required six witnesses. It's it is astounding that they could you you could be reporting on something like that or witnessing or, or you know observing something like that one day and then observing the very tragic William Terrell case, right? Um, and one of the things that you mention about that case, which of course is is the you know it is a very very sad story. Um, uh, you refer to as the Tyrrell Watchers. Tell us what they are, who they are. So the, the case of uh, William Tyrrell, the, the little toddler who went missing on the New South Wales mid-north coast some years ago and, and has never been found, but who a coroner has, has stated is presumed dead. Um, this particular inquest into his disappearance opened in Sydney a few years ago and I covered it at Lidcombe Coroner's Court and then it transferred to Taree on the mid-north coast for a week. And the reason for that was that Taree Courthouse is the nearest courthouse to Kendall, the tiny village that William was visiting when he disappeared with, with his family. Now, uh, I sat in on the inquest um, at Taree and not a lot was heard in the court because witnesses couldn't appear, lawyers couldn't show, and the court was closed for a lot of the time, much to the, the disappointment of the media. But in the public gallery for that Taree sitting week of the inquest were a lot of court watchers. Now, through my career in covering courts, I've always uh, come across court watchers and they are members of the general public who come to court out of interest just to observe cases uh, for something to do. Uh, quite often they have not studied law themselves, but they're just intrigued by it. They want to learn more about it. And a lot of them, Valerie, are retirees and they meet up in groups and they'll go out to lunch and they'll go and sit in on a court case for the day. Well, I'm used to that in the city. I, I didn't quite expect it at Taree local courthouse, but there were heaps of court watchers. There would have been about 20 or 30 people who had nothing to do with the case. They weren't witnesses. They weren't family members. They just came to watch. And one lady um, sitting next to me said that she came from a, a nearby town. She'd driven all the way to Taree, um, a couple of hours drive. And I asked her, I said, do you know any of the people involved? And she said, no, no, I've just been following this case in the media. And uh, one day when the inquest was adjourned and there was a couple of hours where we had nothing to do, we were just sitting around waiting for the, the hearing to start again, people behind me uh, were talking about oyster shucking and their holidays overseas. And one fellow told me that he, he bought this cashmere um, hat from a, a camping trip several years ago and they were having these conversations about anything but William Tyrrell, nothing to do with William Tyrrell himself. And a couple of the people were, were really upset and one lady was crying for, for a lot of the time I was talking to her and one of the court sheriffs, the, the court employees who keep an eye on, on proceedings, said to me that he had heard a lot of these people saying that they'd been in foster care themselves as children and they'd had a really bad experience of it. And of course, the, the big thing about the William Tyrrell um, inquest and, and his disappearance is that he was in foster care when he disappeared from Kendall on the mid-north coast. So I was sitting there with this array of people who had just come out of interest and um, they were the court watchers of, of William Tyrrell. Mm. This um, book is not only an account of very interesting cases, 
it really paints a, gives you a, a peek into country life and and the community and the relationships and the things that people have to deal with in the country that when you live in the city, you don't even think about. It also um, gives us an insight into your life um, and certain things that have happened to you and that you have gone through and your experiences. Um how much was that difficult? Because when you're a journalist, you have to write in a very objective fashion and you do not include yourself in the story, especially not in court reporting. Was it difficult to put yourself, your your family, you know, on the page? It, it was very difficult and I struggled with that in my first book, The Court Reporter, as well, mainly because you think no one will want to hear about that, no one will find it interesting. They want to hear about these cases, not me. So it is very hard being on the other side of it. But I, I guess after a while, once you start writing about yourself, you think, huh, that's okay. Uh, you know, if, if they're bored, they don't have to read it or they can edit that bit out. Um, so it, it's, it's all right to tell your story. And in a way, you need to. You need to have a voice. You you can't just write facts about what you did in your job for the day because you are a, a person, you are a you know a partner, a, a sister, an auntie, a friend, a neighbor. And and in the talks that I, I do about uh, both of my books um in libraries and at events and things, they're the sorts of questions people ask me. They want to know about personal stuff. You know, how did you do this? How did you meet that person? How did you feel? Tell me more about your childhood. It's like that's sort of the hook for them. And in this book, um, The Outback Court Reporter, I actually have a chapter on um, a health inquiry, a regional health inquiry. And uh, that inquiry I um I helped um, initiate because of uh, tragic circumstances involving uh, my father, Alan Wells, who was uh, born in, in Coburn, New South Wales, and was a very respected local man who loved the bush, but died in very tragic circumstances after appalling care in regional hospitals. And so for me, that was, was very, very personal. And um, that health inquiry um, made some very serious and damning findings against regional health. Um, it basically said that people, uh, frontline staff are working in a culture of fear and, and regional health is um, way below par of what people would receive in cities. In, in fact, it identified that the life expectancy for people in regional areas is going backwards. So I had to fight for that inquiry and the hearings were in makeshift courtrooms, if you like, things like RSL clubs and council halls all around the state. And the interesting thing about it was that no one was going to see that because much of the media couldn't travel there because of distance and people weren't watching evidence about about themselves. Regional Australia couldn't see um, what was being said at the inquiry. So I also had to fight to have that live stream so people could actually watch it. So there's a whole chapter I've, I've written about that, about my dad, about my very personal journey through the regional health system, the fight I had to get some sort of 
justice for him, to be a voice for him. Um, and I teamed up uh, to do that uh, with Liz Hayes, um, the 60 Minutes reporter. And uh, Liz has also um, had a similar experience with her father. And so we've teamed up together and we're still fighting very hard to try to uh, draw attention to the appalling state of regional health and to try and improve it um, for other families. And health, I see, is being very related to uh, the courts because in the bush, magistrates are always sending people to go and have rehab for drug addiction to um, get health um to get treatment, to get mental health uh, treatment, to get tr treatment from their GP for all sorts of anxiety and mental health issues. But the truth is most of these people will never get that treatment because it doesn't exist. They can't travel the distance they need to travel to get it um, or the waiting list is so long they're going to be waiting four or five years. So I see um, uh, the law and courts, the court system and health as being linked and, and part of um, a bigger problem, if you like. When you have uh, two decades to to draw from and so many bazillion cases that you will have experienced or observed, how did you curate what ended up in the book? What were the parameters or some guidelines of, of deciding what to eventually write about? So with this book, the, the Outback Court Reporter, uh, I wrote about some personal experiences I'd had being in courtrooms myself, magistrates I'd met who granted me exclusive interviews about um, horrific cases they've covered, uh, magistrates I followed around to, to see their work and, and magistrates who invested a lot of themselves in, in local communities. So they were people who who struck me as people who were really trying to make a difference uh, in the towns that they worked in. So that was a they, they were easy choices. They were courtrooms I'd physically been into. Uh, other stories I picked were stories that came to me. Uh, people would ring me and say, look, I've just seen this wacky magistrate who's imposed these bail conditions that you would never believe in a country courtroom or I've just come across this law firm and these solicitors are so out there and, and, and the things that they're doing for their clients or not doing for their clients really bigger beliefs. So um, I... Did a bit of a judicial road trip, if you like. I, I went around uh, different country towns uh, in different states, New South Wales, Queensland, um, hopped in the car, drove around, drove to some country courts in Victoria and just popped into courthouses quite randomly. So I'd, I'd pull up and think, oh, well, this court's sitting for the day. I'll just go in, have a look, see what happens. And uh, people would tell me their stories in the foyer. People would approach me and start talking to me. And then I also interviewed a lot of other court reporters, Valerie, um, people who, for example, work in remote communities in the Northern Territory where there are no actual courts. When court sits there, it's usually once a month or once every couple of months and the whole legal system flies in. So the the judge and the prosecutor and everyone involved flies in on a little plane and then they set up these makeshift courtrooms with, with plastic chairs and tables, so nothing like what, what you and I are, are used to seeing in city courtrooms. Um, also, we've sort of mentioned um, the lighter side of courts, which is very much part of country court life. There are these very funny, entertaining cases, but the really heavy side of it is um, country towns can be a really hard 
place to live in. There's a really dark side of them because everybody knows everyone else. So a lot of crimes like domestic violence, for example, don't get reported. So a lot of these things are happening and people are never facing court, never being charged because A, there's a real stigma involved about speaking up and coming forward. B, there uh, is a sort of shortage of solicitors. And C, because courts only sit there at random times, it, it's very hard for uh, people you know, trying to get a matter before the courts to sometimes have that heard, they have to travel a very long distance. And that's okay for you and I. We can hop in a car and, you know, drive down the road or hop on a bus. But when you live three or four hours away from any major court or, or major centre, that could be another ball game, especially if you don't have transport and where there's no public transport. So there's this very dark um, domestic violence, alcohol and drug-related crime uh, scene in country towns. And, and it's quite confronting when you dig into that a little bit and actually sit in, in courts when these matters are being heard. And you can sense the frustration um, that the magistrates have and that the, the legal aid solicitors have sometimes trying to help people or, or represent them when they're charged with these types of offences. Speaking of the dark side, who knew there was such a dark side to the CWA? I mean, we think of them as having scones and, you know, jam and cream, but there's a lot more to the CWA than meets the eye when you read this book, isn't there? There is, there is. And uh, just by chance one day I was walking around uh, the Supreme Court building in Taylor Square in Sydney and uh, there the Supreme Court buildings are all over the city and there are some old uh, court buildings that once used to be uh, an art school uh, or part of an art school. And I, I wandered into a court and there was a defamation case underway and it was a country New South Wales woman who was suing the CWA for defamation because uh, she'd been removed from her role as branch secretary. Now, she alleged that the CWA had destroyed her life um, had destroyed her husband's life, had uh, destroyed her reputation as a, as a great CWA member. And uh, she alleged all sorts of things. She said that people had been rude to her. Uh, she said that local members had misappropriated grants for garden beds. And she said that petty cash limits were, were uh, incorrectly stated and that there were all sorts of issues with the CWA. Now, now this woman uh, represented herself and the CWA engaged a really high profile uh, barrister to represent them. And it was a judge alone uh, trial. So there was no jury, judge alone defamation trial. So this woman called on her husband as a witness and she started um, examining him about the local theatrical society. And at one point, the judge stopped everything and she said, stop, stop, stop. She said, I just don't see how the local theatrical society has got anything to do with your case. And this woman got very stroppy and uh, the uh, defence barrister at one point incorrectly named someone and and this woman called the defence barrister dyslexic. She talked over the top of the defence barrister and we heard evidence um, about the way this woman conducted herself at CWA meetings. And at one point we heard evidence that she had actually sent another committee member an email saying um, that the committee member had been a complete failure in all the roles she'd held and she said, dot, 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 uh, congratulations on your 100% failure rate. So 
These are the sorts of allegations the CWA was making about her. And in the end, the judge ruled in favour of the CWA and she said, look, um, I can understand that you were upset about being dismissed from your role, but she said, I find that you were belligerent and rude and you talked over the top of me, over the top of other people in the courtroom. And so she said, uh, I, I don't think you've been defamed in this case. Now, Valerie, it didn't stop there. This woman, again representing herself, appealed against this ruling. Um, the, the appeal was dismissed, but you have to give it to her. She uh, represented herself, which is very, very hard in, in any legal uh, matter. I mean, going to court, um, even if you've got a top defence team or a top you know, counsel is really, really hard anyway. It's very stressful. It's very expensive. Uh, but, but she did the whole thing on her own and she would stand out the front of the court with a styrofoam cup of tea during the court break and let people take her photo. And, and I said to her one day, I said, what made you take the CWA on? This is a huge undertaking. And she said, well, I'm, I'm just sick of being treated like an idiot. She said, no lawyer would represent me, so I, I'm representing myself. So um, she, she did have a lot of courage to do that. Oh, my Lord. Now, in the book you uh, write about um, some, some tip-offs, right, and like the other day I had my neighbours over for drinks and they, it came out in conversation that they actually had lived in the house that backed onto Chris Dawson's house back then and they started talking about certain things and I'm sitting there going, I really need to, I mean, I'm, it doesn't matter now, but, you know, it's because the, the case is done and Chris Dawson has been convicted. I really need to email Hedley Thomas. Now, and then I then I, my second thought is, oh, but he must know that, know this information. Do you appreciate tip-offs or are they uh, wild goose chases or have any led to, you know, some pretty good breakthroughs on for you? Throughout my career, I have had a lot of tip-offs and some of the best ones I've had are actually in relation to court cases are from the court watchers that, that we mentioned before um, because some of these people uh, sit in more courtrooms than court reporters. So quite often they rung me or emailed me and said, oh, there's this really great case happening down in court five or, or whatever. So, so that's been amazing. I have also had some uh, tip-offs that have been a little alarming and a little concerning. And during um, the stage of the William Tyrrell inquest at Taree that we, we just mentioned, um, a lot of the media were getting emails from people who we thought were uh, perhaps maybe a little bit mentally unwell or wanting to be part of the drama of it all or, or maybe they were genuinely trying to help. It was very difficult to tell. And one person was emailing me and saying that they had psychic abilities and that they knew where William was, that they knew two people who had taken him and, and they actually outlined where they'd taken him to and what they'd done with him. And, and so I emailed back and said, well, what's your phone number? I'd like to talk to you on the record and get some information from you. And, and then the, the, the contact stopped. So you can only think that they were perhaps being a bit, bit mischievous. It's, it's very hard to tell. So the other reporters and I passed all of this on to the coroner, uh, which is, is the right thing to do. And quite often um, I've received 
tip-offs from uh, juries and, 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 and other people involved in cases who, who really shouldn't be talking to the media at all. So I've always passed those on to the judge um, involved in the case because that's the right thing to do. Um, and quite often uh, people will uh, alert you to the fact in country towns that their neighbour is in court over something um, and, 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 and they're not. It's just them being a little bit mischievous and trying to muddy the name of their neighbour. But, but one neighbour in my, my hometown of, of Cobar in outback New South Wales, um, every time I used to go home and visit my dad when he was still alive, um, this neighbour would run up and, and start talking to me about the cases I'd been covering in Sydney. And I said to her, I said, look, you obviously love courts and the drama of them. I said, next time court is sitting in Cobar, why don't you go in and, and have a look? Anyone is allowed to sit in a public gallery. And she went, no, no. She said, I could never do that because people would think I was in trouble, that my husband was was beating me or I was I had a traffic offence or something. But she said, you know what we do? She said at Tuck Shop, um, she had kids at the local school and she said at Tuck Shop, uh, we all gather around and we look up the court list for the day and we look up all the names and we try and work out what they're in court for. So I think there is this interest wherever you go, Valerie, about who's in court. It's just that in a, in a country town, you know, you, you probably know all the people on the court list, whereas in Sydney you might maybe know half a dozen or something like that. Talk to me about the timeline of you writing this. When did you decide, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to going to put my bum in the chair and I'm going to start writing and how long did it take? So uh, my first book, um, The Court Report, it came out in 2018 and part of the reason, I wrote that one very quickly and part of the reason I wrote that was because my mum had just died so it was a grieving process and that got me through it. I, it was her suggestion that I, I write the book so to honour her memory I just sat down and, and wrote about everything I'd experienced in that the the stages of my career as a court reporter. I started writing the second one about a year after that, early 2019, and that was because uh, readers came up to me at book events and said, oh, uh, do you ever go out to the country? You know, you're born in the country. Do you ever cover courts there? And, and a few of them said that, and I thought, you know what, I do sometimes and I do like going to them. So that, that's how that idea grew. So I started writing the book. Um, then my dad um, became very unwell and had an awful experience in the health system. So everything got put on hold for a little while. And, uh, of course, with COVID lockdowns, it meant that I couldn't travel much. So some court cases um, we were allowed to dial into during COVID, they tended to be big court cases in the cities like Supreme Court jury trials and federal court matters. But the local courts and the magistrates' courts in the country didn't really have much dialing capacity because they, they just don't have the facilities. So I had to put my uh, judicial road trip on hold and try and work around that a bit. And that's when I thought, you know what, I can't drive everywhere I want to because of COVID lockdowns, but I can interview people, I can get people on the phone, I can talk to magistrates, I can meet up with them when they're in Sydney um, for their work. And, and so I started doing a lot of that. So it really took me about three years to write the, the second book. Um, and, and because I had to travel interstate to go to a lot of the courts, I had to fit that around uh, my job as, as a court reporter for the ABC. So that that took a bit of navigating. Um, so first book written really quickly, second book took a bit longer. Um, 
when you are actually covering cases, not for the book, but in your journalism, uh, I know obviously that as a journalist, you are meant to report the facts and be objective, but are, are there op- situations, I imagine there are situations where you have a firm opinion of what's happened. Um, is that, how often is that the case? And um, uh, what do you have to do to ensure that your reporting stays a professional? Yes. Yeah, it, that's an interesting one in that you usually have, everyone is an expert when it comes to courts. And, and in the media, everyone is an expert. They go, oh, yes, I know that's like this case. And the truth is none of us really know and what we think is irrelevant. Our job is to present the Crown case and the defence case equally and and in a non-biased way. So if I cover the Crown opening, uh, it is ideal that I cover the defence opening. I cover some of the Crown witnesses, some of the defence witnesses. And it's very important to get um, what's said in court accurate. And that is a real skill because you're you're listening, you're distracted by noise in the courtroom. Uh, you can't record in, in the courtroom. You, you're just relying on your own notes. So so it's very, very important to, to get it accurate, to get it right. And there's a lot of pressure that, that comes with that. And no matter how long you've been reporting on courts, and I still go through this, I still question myself. I go, did I just hear that? Is, is that right? Oh, you know, and um, so so we're always second guessing ourselves, and there's always this pressure because if we get something wrong, we could abort a trial, um, we could defame uh, someone, um, we could really anger the judge who who might not want us back in the courtroom, um, and you know we we could really prejudice uh, decisions, and it, it's really. more than any other round I think it's important with courts to be accurate and and to be fair and and balanced and to attribute correctly and there are little things that that you just learn along the way like um, sometimes outside the court people will happily give you grabs or comments about how the case is going but you know you can't always use them because the yes. case is underway or, or they're a witness, so they shouldn't be trying to talk to you anyway. So you learn this as you go. There are a lot of traps for the for the newcomers to, to reporting on courts. Yes. Um, but what I have found is it's a very collegiate round in that there's the same pressure on all of us, so we all tend to work together and, and run things past each other. You know, I heard that. Did you hear that? You know, and, and double-check things and and pull uh, and share um, vision. So, so, for example, when I first started court reporting, there may have been 15 or 16 TV cameras outside the court. Now, because of a lot of streamlining of the media, there might be four or five, and the networks will share that vision. So there's a lot of collaboration involved in court reporting these days. Uh, It is quite an obstacle that you can't record stuff because you really do have to rely on the accuracy of your shorthand if you, you know, if if a, and and do the newcomers know shorthand? Are they taught shorthand? How, How do they deal with that? No, and I don't even use official shorthand. So I just, have my own way of of note taking mm. and and I think you learn to to write down the important facts a couple of important quotes you can always rely on transcripts but for broadcast media 
they're too slow because you might have to wait a couple of days to get a transcript of a case. Whereas if I'm reporting on a case, a trial that's underway, for example, the expectation is that I will file for radio every hour. I will probably do a TV story for that night and a digital story as well, or some combination of those. So there's pressure to be filing every hour and, and quickly. And with social media now too, um, there's pressure to uh, also uh, have a link, for example, to your digital story on Facebook or, or, or you know, on different websites, linked to different websites as well. So, so it's this constant churning out of material, um, and um, it's 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 difficult, but it's 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 fun. Like it, it's quite satisfying to to get it right, um, to report accurately and fairly, and to be part of what's sometimes history. Um, you just mentioned the Chris Dawson trial. Um, well, I, I covered that. Um, I've covered uh, other high-profile trials that have sometimes occurred years, decades after someone has committed a crime or an offence, and they're very big parts of, of history, and it's quite exciting to be part of that and to be there in the court and, and seeing the person, you know, to seeing Chris Dawson. Um, I recently covered the case of Kathleen Folbig, uh, who was acquitted and pardoned um, after spending more than 20 years in jail for killing her four children. Well, to actually see her uh, at trial and to see her at these various inquiries into her convictions um, was really interesting and something not many people would get the chance to do. And, and I guess I always feel a sense of gratitude in that I'm sort of peering in on people's lives. Like if you're in court, you're, you're usually not there for a good reason. It's something upsetting in your life or something that's really difficult for you. And I feel quite privileged uh, to be able to to see that, to be to be looking in on it. But with that comes the responsibility of getting it right, of being fair, of being accurate. And, and sometimes if you can't confirm something or you're not sure of what you heard, you just have to leave it out. You just have to go, look, I'm not sure. I have to leave that out till I can check it with the prosecutor, check the transcript or check, check it in some other way. I just can't write that. I just can't say that. Mm. It's the ultimate fly on the wall experience, isn't it? I mean, you seem so passionate about it, even though you've done it for so long, because I, of course there is no shortage of new stuff um, to fascinate and intrigue you. What's the grandmaster plan? I, how long do you think you'll do this for? Oh, look, I've been doing it for nearly 20 years, which is a long time. Um, I'm not sick of it yet. Um, so I'd like to think in my really old age, I can become one of those court watchers who can travel around and, and see court cases. But but the other thing I've done over the years, Valerie, because it's such a high pressure round and it deals with such uh, graphic and, and full-on material, um, the ABC has been great in that they've given me little circuit breakers. So sometimes, for example, I read the news just to, to break it up. I'll do some court reporting and then read the news for a little bit then go back to the court reporting. So I think that's really important and it's important to to check yourself and to say, okay, I, I really need leave or I really need to go talk about that horrible day that I, I sat through in court today and and I think court reporters are very aware of that and our employers are very aware of it too so um, that they tend to to look after us a little bit in giving us leave giving us little circuit breakers and, and making sure that you know we can go and chat to our, our news directors or chat to other reporters if we want to about stories um, look, I'm not sick of it yet. And uh, someone said to me once, they said, I, you've probably sat in more courts than 
than lawyers because lawyers don't spend their whole career in a courtroom. They do a lot of uh, office and other things as well. And that that's probably true in that I don't think there's any court I haven't sat, sat in, federal court, supreme court, district courts, local courts, inquests, tribunals, um, inquiries. Um, it, there's, there's a lot, lot out there. Do you have a particular... In, on the topic of you know sitting in court, do you have a particular spot to best observe proceedings that you like to go so this, to? This is very personal. This is for me. I like to sit up the back near the door. Now, the reason for this is it allows for easy getting in and getting out to file stories because if, for example, I'm covering a case in a court and it's about you know 10 to, 10 to the hour, um, the expectation is that I file a radio story on that. So I have to run outside, file a story into my uh, voice memos on my phone and then email it off to the newsroom with a top line, a lead. So I need to get in and out really quickly. So I tend to get to court early and hog that back row near the door. Um, And that way I can see the rest of the courtroom as well. I can see who's sitting in the gallery. I can see the magistrate. I can see the video screens. I can see the court staff. And sometimes I've even been sitting in, in public galleries and families of and friends of people on trial or, or appearing in the dock that day are sitting near me and I don't know and someone will lean across and go oh no you've spelt his name wrong there and it's suddenly it's, it's quite embarrassing you think oh no you've got you know a family member in court today so in those instances I'm just always polite and thank them for their help uh, if they're ever aggressive which sometimes understandably they are they hate the media being there um, because you know we're we're peering in on on very private stuff. So in that case, I would move away or the court staff would sometimes see see that maybe a situation is escalating. So they'd ask the journalist to sit on the other side of the room or something like that. Um, The same outside the court. Sometimes people don't mind being filmed or or giving you a a quote or two, but other times they're really not interested, um, that they don't want you anywhere near them and they can be quite rude. So I think you have to Pick your moment, you know. Honestly, Jamel, I could talk to you for hours and I think that a lot of people would love to talk to you for hours, but if they can't do that, they should get the Outback Court Reporter, which is just such a fantastic read. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Valerie. Lovely chatting to you. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Jamel. It is honestly inconceivable some of the things that make it to court. Anyway, it's such a great read. Now I'm going to leave you with this fun fact. Phrases such as, you know, like um, when the going gets tough, the tough get going, or you can live to work or work to live, um, one for all and all for one, or uh, JFK's famous speech, John F. Kennedy's famous speech, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Now, all of these are examples of anti-metaboly. That's anti-metaboly. So anti-metaboly is a figure of speech where a phrase is repeated, but with the words in a different order. There you go. Maybe that should have been the word of the week, huh? Okay. Have you ever used an antimetaboly? Have you ever used the word antimetaboly in a sentence? <laughs> Give it a go this week. 
All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Do connect with me on social media. I'm at Valerie Koo uh, on Instagram predominantly, but I'm also in the Facebook group. Please do join us. Um, There's a fantastic community of emerging and established writers on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. I'd love to see you in there. In the meantime, thanks so much for joining me and I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercenter.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercenter.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.